Um, it's, I'm Tina Lundquist-Faust, co-president of Houston Petsat. Hi, Trish. I'm Tama Lundquist, other co-president of Houston Petsat. Good morning. How Thank are you? Thank you for inviting me to chat. Good to meet both of you. Yes. So we're with um, Trish McMillan. She is an animal behaviorist and trainer. Um, note, um, you've worked with the ASPCA and done so many really um, fabulous things with animals. So Trish, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your background. Sure. I'm a lifelong animal person, as I'm sure everybody is who's on your podcast. I started off working with horses when I was a teenager. I trained and showed horses for about 12 years. And then I got too broke for horses and got into dogs. And that led me into sheltering in the mid 90s. And I kind of stuck with sheltering ever since. I started as a volunteer and um, worked my way up to director of animal behavior at the ASPCA shelter in Manhattan and had a couple of other jobs with them until I left the A in 2012. And I've been running Macmillan Animal Behavior ever since. So I do dog, cat, and horse behavior consulting. And I do shelter consulting. I've been lucky to be able to travel and lecture all around the world and see what lots of people are doing with shelter stuff all over all over the planet. And uh, I cannot wait to get back to traveling again. It's been tough being stuck home during the pandemic. Yes. Have you continued to train through the pandemic? I looked at your website and it looks like you do oh, um, yeah. online. Great. Is that successful? Yeah, I, I, yeah it, it has been more successful than I ever could have dreamed doing Zoom consulting. Mm -hmm. And I've also moved most of my in-person consulting with dogs anyways, to my little farm here, which is great. I've got a little, a little pasture I can train in and a, a shelter that we can get under if it's too rainy or too hot. And it's really nice because I've got all of my animals here to use as distractions. I've got my dogs who have socialized many a pandemic puppy to other dogs. And it's, I don't know if I'm ever going to start traveling to people's houses again. I really like having them come to me. It's pretty awesome. Well, I'm glad you brought up your home and where you live. It's called Pibble Hill. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the name of my little three and a half acre farm. We've got 22 animals here, which is subject to change of any, mm. any wind, any blowing of the wind could bring me another creature. But, um, well, tell us about yeah. the name Pibble. A lot well, of people it, might not know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Pibble is kind of a friendlier name for pit bulls that, uh, a lot of us use in the community. And I have a pretty awesome pit bull who's from an ASPCA dog fighting case he actually invented the word pibbling which is all the silly things that pit bulls do <laughs> i got it on urban dictionary can get what you did that's yeah. congratulations did you get it's pibble still, on there or pibbling now pibble's been around for yeah. a long time so pibbling, pibbling. Is, is uh i was the one who wrote that definition and they accepted that's it on great. urban dictionary so that's great it's it's kind of a, a word i have for the silly things pit bulls do and yeah, but, the farm. That's interesting um, to think about your uh, expertise in animal behavior and then how that intersects with the pibble or the pit bull. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, because I, there is, I just want to say there is so much controversy about the pit bull. You know, uh, everyone wants to take a, take a side. They're good or they're bad. But um, let, let's hear it from the expert. <laughs> 
Well, I, I fall pretty strongly in the all dogs are individuals camp. Mm-hmm. I do not, um, I, I like Diane Jessup's quote, they are not wolves in sheep's clothing or sheep in wolves clothing, they are dogs and we need to treat them as such. So the pit bull that I live with is the best pit bull in the world. He's, um, he's kind of my argument for um, nur- of nature overcoming nurture. He was raised by a dog fighter, chained to a barrel for the first eight months of his life. And then he spent the next eight months in an ASPCA shelter waiting for his case to process. And he's, he loves dogs. He loves people. This isn't typical for dogs with that background, but his personality just came through despite all of the hardship that he went through, despite missing that critical socialization period of the first four months of life when most dogs are learning what is safe and what is dangerous. He just, he was was a little fearful when he first came to the shelter and then he was like, oh, everybody here is really nice. The dogs, dogs are really nice. And he was wonderful at playing with dogs and my friend Amy Cook was on the rotation before I was when they when they discovered how great he was with other dogs and she pointed me towards him and said this dog needs to belong to a trainer so he helps me with you know pandemic puppies who have never met a dog he's the first dog that I bring out he's so gentle he can flex his play style to any other dog's play style so he'll make himself all small and gentle for a puppy and you know, this is not typical of all dog fighting case mm-hmm. dogs. But um, yeah, he, his name is Theodore. He has a Facebook page called Pibbling with Theodore. If you want to see all the ridiculous things he gets up to. <laughs> he's nine years old and he's got cancer now. And I'm not sure how, how long he'll be with me. But he's really changed a lot of people's minds about this type of dog. You talked about nature over nurture. So is that part of your training I guess, component when you look at dogs and you train them? Do you look at what did nature bring, bring along and what what can we nurture in or out of them? Yeah, there's, I have a pretty popular talk. I've given at a bunch of conferences called It's Not All How They're Raised. And I wrote uh, an article on it for the Huffington Post a number of years ago. And, you know, as, as humans, we want to put all of our eggs in one basket or the other. It's either all how you're raised or it's all how you're trained. There's no bad dogs, only bad owners. And neither of those are true. We are all product, product of both nature and nurture and a whole lot of other things. Um, the most aggressive dog I have ever lived with was the product of a sibling mating. And he was starved. His mother was starved before he was born. So although after he was born, he got the best of everything. We did neurological stimulation. He got socialized to dogs and cats and kids and uh, got a lot of training. He was showing aggression at three weeks of age. And by the time he was six months of age, he was a very dangerous dog. So he's kind of the flip side. (laughs) So we've got Theodore. You want to say there's no bad dogs, only bad owners. Well, he had a terrible owner. His owner is still in prison for the unbelievable cruelty he did with dog fighting. And Theodore is a lovely dog. He loves everybody. And Chinook, my dangerous dog, had the best of everything. From the moment he was born, I had him from birth. He was raised by a trainer. 
and I still could not overcome what what his genes, what his prenatal environment, what his mother was quite fearful. I think that can have an effect as well. Sure. Just seeing that she cowered away from people, I think the puppies are more likely to pick up pick up on that. I. I think I got my master's degree in animal behavior in part to find out what I what went wrong with Chinook. And I can tell you, if I had him now, I would still not be able to save him. I euthanized him at 18 months of age after many, many, many bites and um, after trying so many things with him. Yeah. So that brings up a question. Is there like a, a mental health component? Can dogs have, you know, poor mental health? and good mental health, and how does that play into their behavior? It's, it's kind of like people. There's some people that are just born imbalanced, and I think you're saying the same thing about dogs, and I think it's something that's maybe gone unnoticed um, for too long in shelters, in rescue groups. You know, this save them all doesn't necessarily work all the time. Well, there's certainly been a lot of myths perpetuated by by the sheltering community. We all sort of pick up on what everybody else is saying and continue. And I, I spend a lot of my time busting myths. Um, dogs are made out of the same things we are and they can have similar mental health issues. We can't ask them, we can't say, are you seeing hallucinations? I know for sure that there were times that Chinook did not recognize me. I could look at him in the crate and he would be snarling and lunging at the front at certain times. And then like a switch would flip off. And now he was, lest we get back to this being a pit bull thing. He was a mixed breed, chocolate brown dog with brindle paws. <laughs> Couldn't tell you what, what, what type of dog he was, 55 pounds. And I think the prenatal starvation had a lot to do it, with it. I think his parents were not the friendliest dogs by nature. Um, I think he had some chemical imbalances because of all the things I tried, of all the training and behavior modification. The thing that made the biggest difference to him was psychotropic medication. Once he was on the right meds, the aggression went down significantly. The sad thing is it did not last for long. It, it helped him for eight or 10 months and then it stopped having an effect and we never found anything else that worked as well. Interesting. Yeah. It's, we've, we've known of a case similar to that and we think that it was a puppy that was removed too soon from the mother. It was removed at probably four to five weeks and, um, this dog was, was in a, an extended family member's home and, um, could not be socialized. And there were some days when the dog was just fabulous, just great, just loving. And other times he would be growling and snarling and they couldn't trust him. And as, as a family, this um, family member eventually had to, to euthanize the dog because there was nothing that could be done. There, there was no explanation or patterns in, in behavior. So um, I think that it's maybe... I push back a little bit on, on the too soon because we always want to find a thing like if Chinook came into a shelter they'd be like oh he doesn't like men surely he was beaten by a man mm -hmm. I can tell you for sure that dog maybe his dinner was late once but he had nothing bad happen to him mm -hmm. and the same goes for underage puppies I have um I have right beside me a little underage puppy who was found on the beach in Puerto Rico at five weeks of age and she is a 
completely solid dog. She is, was my best agility dog when she was younger. She's 15 now. Um, and I've, I've raised a number of underage puppies mm -hmm. who, who have ended up being okay. So we want to just sort of pin it on one thing, but you know, it could have been genetic. It could have been prenatal malnutrition. It could have been lack of oxygen yeah. at birth. There are so many things that can cause um, behavioral deterioration or severe behavior problems. And we want to blame the, we want to blame the old owners. We want to find a reason, but I am guessing, I'm hoping we know more about this in the future, but I am guessing that often it's many factors coming together yes. as a like you can't name just one thing that it could be, it could be one thing or it could be multiple things. Are there any scientific studies happening to, to determine, you know, what are the, the factors contributing to dogs that are aggressive, but beyond kind of help? Yeah, I would love to see more of this. When I went for my master's degree, I had this great idea in my head, like, I'm going to figure out what was wrong with Chinook. There's surely there's lots of studies on and I did find studies on prenatal malnutrition, but with rats. And, and when you start looking at how to conduct a study on something like this, you run into such ethical quandaries. Like, do I take one group of pregnant females and starve them and then see what their puppies turn out like? Yeah. Like, good luck getting ethical approval for that. Sure, right. So it, it can be really hard. I, I really hope that we can get more science behind it. And I urge people when they do euthanize dogs for behavior to get a necropsy if you can afford it, because sometimes they find there's a brain tumor. My friend Sue Alexander, we both run a um, grief support group for people who have lost their pets to behavior, not just dogs, but it is mostly dogs. And she worked with a bulldog for years who had sporadic, acute aggression. She had every behaviorist in who visited her town take a look at this dog. And after he was euthanized for his behavior at age eight, they found he had a shunt in his brain that was probably causing migraine level pain for a lot of his life when he was in these episodes. So these are these are things you can't see from the outside. These are things that sometimes don't respond to training. And, and that being said, I'm a big believer in training behavior modification. There are a vast number of things we can fix. I don't want people to think, oh, my dog growled. That's it. Right. And in and, and the necropsy, what is there something special people should ask for? Because we do run into this, and I'm sure our listeners run into this because we have 70-plus rescue partners that we hope um, – that this provides information for these podcasts provide information for. So number one, is there something we, that special that should be asked for in the necropsy or is it included in all necropsies? And then number two, um, this will be a longer answer, I'm sure. But um, at what point is there some sort of guidance, like wide guidance that you can give? At what point do you think an animal should be considered for euthanasia um, that, you know, so many of our dogs come off the streets. They're scared. They're aggressive. So you've got to give them, we feel we've got to give them a little bit extra time to decompress. But then at what point do, do we, would we say, this is not working and this is a liability? Um, can you give us a little guidance on that as a rescue community? Yeah. So as far as the necropsy, I am not a veterinarian. I can't give you like specifics, but... When we're talking about behavioral euthanasias, I think 
looking at the brain as well as possible sites of pain in the body. Mm -hmm. Like I have, I know some of the folks on Lulu have done necropsies and found brain tumors. They have found painful conditions that the animal just couldn't tell you about. So sometimes it gives you answers. I, be, I believe with Chinook, if I did a necropsy, I think it was biochemical with him. So sometimes it tells you nothing. So you have to, if you're a small rescue, you have to decide where you're going to put your money. But right. with private clients, I always ask and they're like, I don't want my dog cut up. And it's not for you. But if you're interested in furthering science, I think I would love to see more of these, mm-hmm. these conditions. I would like to see some more formal study. It's a and humane, well, sorry, it's a humane way of gathering this data. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I'm going to think about it for us, if we can afford it, you know, for the longevity, for the strategic part of what we do, it would be so nice to gather some of this data. So we had this for future use um, to save more animals or to save more people for the greater good. Yeah, I would love to see more of it. And it, it's not always possible. Often the animal needs to be sent to a veterinary school. It's not something your regular vet will usually be able to do. So you may not be able to refrigerate the body and get it transported yeah. to a place. But if you've got a vet school in your town, which Sue Alexander has, so she was able to get the necropsy done on Bunker and find out what was going on. And I think having the answers can be helpful. But sometimes we are Sometimes it's something that you can't see anatomically. As far as where owners and shelters should draw the line on what behaviors to work with, boy, I would need four hours to go through all of the details. Sue and I actually have a webinar called um, Losing Lulu, Making the Decision for Families. It's a two-part webinar where we go through all of the things to consider. Is this a dog? that we could ethically rehome. So don't send me your aggressive dogs, everybody. But I did pick in a client's dog once who was not working out in their home, which was busy. They had small children. They had workers going and coming. And he had bitten a number of times in that home. I knew this dog well. I had had him at my house for board and train. I knew he didn't do that stuff at my place. I don't have kids. I can control who's coming and going. And I kept that dog for the last eight years of his life. So sometimes rehoming is okay. The rescue groups very rightly turned down that dog, although he was a purebred. He had a number of damaging bites on his record and they were like, nope, don't want the liability. So he could not be rehomed through rescue. It was if he was taken to an average shelter and if they were honest about his bite history, he would have been euthanized there. So they were able to find a home that, like he, I knew he had never done that at my home and he never did bite anyone for the last eight years of his life. So sometimes rehoming is okay. Um, sometimes sending to a shelter is the right thing. If you get the dog from the shelter and they really want to kill your cats and you have four cats at home, certainly send the dog back to the shelter. Doesn't mean the dog has to be euthanized. There are homes where there is very little access to cats where that dog could be fine. But as far as where people in shelters should draw a line, I, I think one distinction is if it's an owned dog, people have had the dog since they were a puppy, people are already very bonded. And at age three, he starts showing aggression towards strangers. The folks who've had that dog for a long time are pretty committed mm-hmm. often. 
So a lot has to do with how hard the humans want to work. A lot has to do with what is the family composition, my friends with the kids coming and going, the workmen coming and going. That was not a good place for that particular dog. And if the dog doesn't have a human attached, I think we have to draw the line a little bit differently. Because nobody comes into a shelter and says, hey, I want a dog with a damaging bite history who has nailed the nanny Mm -hmm. and bitten the kid going by on the bike and bitten the gardener and is going to be a huge liability. And I would, I'm going to sign up for that. Mm -hmm. And I would like a lifetime of training and management. And do you have any of those, please? Nobody comes to a shelter to get those. And often the people that we can talk into taking a difficult dog are not at all prepared to get it. <laughs> they may not have kids now, but they might be young and they might have kids later. They probably do not realize what it takes to live with a, a very dangerous dog. So I think for us in the shelter world, we really have to show some, we have to be humane to our adopters as well. And yeah. when I first started in sheltering, I thought I could save them all. I really strongly felt there was a lid for every pot and I adopted out a lot of dangerous dogs and animals were killed by these dogs. People were bitten by these dogs. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that I traumatized in this way were friends of mine. So I got long-term follow-up on what happened. And I wrote an article, The Perils of Placing Marginal Dogs, where I really thought through the like every one of those dangerous dogs I sent out, and I only wrote about one of them in the article, rest assured there was more than one. Every one of those dogs probably killed 20 shelter dogs inadvertently because people heard the stories, saw the trauma my friends were going through, and were like, I'm not going to get a shelter dog. Whereas Theodore, as a victim of cruelty who loves everybody, has changed a lot of people's minds about dogs from fighting situation about pit bulls in general and you know when you send out a dog like him you've got a 12-year walking advertisement for your rescue your shelter and when you send out a dog like Rosie which is the one I wrote about in that article you are you are doing the opposite Mm -hmm. you're convincing people not to go to a shelter they're ambassadors yeah unfortunately the animal welfare world and rescue world is filled with very difficult decisions and it's not black and white there's more gray area than anything. And, you know, for our rescue community and people out there, everybody's doing the best that they can do. And, um, you know, we've all been in a situation where we've had to let a, a, a unsafe dog cross over, unfortunately. But as to, to your point, we sometimes have to think about the greater good and the, the people, the animals, and the world that we live in and um, those tough decisions have to be made. And I, I'm thinking about my own household too. Um, it's interesting that if, if the, if the attitudes and personalities of my dogs were swapped, I would probably have to euthanize one because I've got a little chihuahua that is bitey as H E double L. I mean, he is, he can be a nasty little thing, but he's, He's a small dog, too, and last night he got a little grumpy on the bed, and I just threw the blankets over him and rolled him. Now, if that had been my 60-pound pit bull, it's a different story. So, um, you know, I'm not—I don't know that there's—I'm not, I'm not asking a question or, or um, 
providing any answers, but it, you have to take that into consideration too, I think. Yeah, and, and size can certainly be a factor, although one of the worst bites that I've heard of was from a Shih Tzu, like permanent nerve damage to wow. somebody's ear. So I know rescues get all kinds of grief if they euthanize a small dog. They're just like, well, it's not going to kill anybody, but living with a small dog, especially if they are aggressive towards the people they live with. Mm -hmm. We do have people on Losing Lulu who have these nice small dogs and they get harassed even worse than those of us who have euthanized 55 pound dogs like right. that or larger ones. But I, I don't think these dogs are happy either. That's right. so true. I wanted to bring that up and didn't know how to frame it without stirring up a, a, a you-know-what storm in the community. But yes, do, we have said that before, that dogs that live in fear or uncertainty aren't necessarily happy. They're, they're uncertain, and it can't be a great existence for them. And I, I like to believe that all dogs go to heaven. Um, and when I think about euthanizing an animal, yes, it's really sad, but there are things worse than death and it's suffering, whether it's a dog living on the street and being shot at or potentially threatened by people in the community or a dog that feels threatened even though it's not but lives a threatened existence in its own brain or in its own mind, that's not good either. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I, was, when I was trying to make the decision with Chinook and it's a hard decision to make. Even in the years before the internet, it was hard to find support to get to get people to give good advice. Um, you know, I was the thing that really cemented it for me was thinking if he was a human, if you if you put the words "my roommate" instead of "my dog," and if I had to say, I cannot pull the covers up on the couch on myself after night after nine at night or my roommate will come over and stab me because Chinook would, that was one of his occasional triggers is the movement of a blanket and you are in full hand to mouth combat trying to get him into a hold where he will not be able to continue biting you. And they weren't nips. These were punctures with those deep black bruises that take 10 days to go away, multiple bites, um, to the arms and legs he never managed to make his way all up all the way up to my face but he certainly launched and if he was a human yeah he would not be sleeping in the mm. dog bed in the corner mm. of my bedroom or in a crate in the dining room as he had to sleep later on in his life when all movement was triggering after dark um he would have been in a prison or he would have been in a psychiatric facility. And there are no such places. People think, oh, there's a sanctuary for all of the dogs who have yeah. behavior problems. He was dog aggressive. He was stranger aggressive. I did find a sanctuary that was willing to take him, but he would have lived in a muddy pen by himself, having food thrown over the, yeah. <laughs> over the side. And if he got loose watch out mm -hmm. and when I thought about this dog who had spent every day in my house had never spent <laughs> had never been in mud against his will I thought well yeah his heart would be beating <laughs> he might right. live right. 12 more years out there but is that a life right. is life at all cost what we're going for and for a dog aggressive dog to live in a pen with 
other dogs on either side, like that's a special kind of torture. So that's hell. Quality, quality of life, right? There are worse things than death. Absolutely. It's kind of, it's, we talked about this before the show, but that mental health is just as important as that physical health too. And, um, you know, if, if the dog can't walk, if the dog can't, can't breathe normally, if the dog has, has limited mobility and can't do dog things, um, that would be, you know, we would look at euthanizing that dog. So I guess what we're saying too, is the mental health needs to be considered too. And it's very yeah. important. And, and, and you're brave to bring this subject up because people, don't think about it or don't want to think about it. As, as we've said that saved them all. <gasps> Look, Look at what at we that. got. Ah, that's such a great way to end. We're, we're, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're on a happy note right now. Yeah. So thank you, Trish. Uh, great point. And, Trish. and it'd be so great to hear again, your website so that our rescue community can, can listen to some of your information and, and get some of it as they go out, go about their daily lives in the rescue community. Yeah, sure. I am. Uh, if you Google my name, Trish McMillan, I have um, a number of videos out from conference talks. I have trishmcmillan.com as my website if you'd like some shelter consulting. And um, yeah, I can be found in lots of places and, and I'm going to be out on the road. <laughs> and I went some- to Pibble Hill. I love going and seeing... Um, Theo's uh, Facebook page. That was so much fun. He's just Yeah, I have, I have two pages. Um, Pibbling with Theodore is my dog's page. Okay. And Pibble Hill is where all the rest of the critters, like this little guy, um, are, they got jealous that Theo got all of the internet attention. So... <laughs> spreading out the love. Well, thank you so much. We have Lisa Tynan, our um, marketing and event specialist to thank for this. Come over. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> Hi Trish. It's so good to see you, Trish. Thank you for all this valuable information. Yes. Yeah. In forever. We got to get out to Pimple Hill at some point. <laughs> um, don't threaten me with that because I 100% will. <laughs> Can we bring some pibbles, please? <laughs> yeah. Pibbles. I've actually opened the top pasture for the winter as a sniff spot so um people can bring their dogs to run around and smell all the smells and you know for an hour and do doggy things yeah Yeah. could have talked forever thank you so much really important topics and i'm so glad to meet you so glad to know you great thank you for inviting me to to be on your podcast thank you for all your great work bye-bye bye trish bye trish